0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and then we're going to read all the way to Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And this section I entitled, A Leavening Agent, and you'll see why I named it that. Remember last week, we talked about how Satan, God's enemy, was on a counterattack because of all the progress God had made in the early church that we read about in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Now, we see that he was unsuccessful in destroying the church through persecution. And so what we see is that God's enemy actually goes into a different mode of trying to attack the church namely, infiltrating the church and trying to destroy it from within. Let's read chapter 4, verse 32. We're told all the believers were unified in heart and mind, and they felt that, they, that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything that they had. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how people were selling their possessions, and that even though the community was rather large, that... There was no person there who had any need because people were selling their possessions and giving it to those who uh, were less fortunate. Verse 33, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's blessing was upon them all. Also we're told there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph The one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. So they cite an individual who actually sold a a plot of land, a tract of land, and gave it to the apostles for the distribution among the poor. Well, things look pretty good in the early church. Pretty awesome. But we're also told that, you know, Luke... Uh, specifies that things, even though they're really good, that there were also problems in the early church as well. We're told he, that Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought it to the, to the apostles. Now, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property, and he brought part of the money to the apostles claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, so Peter goes and confronts this guy once he finds out that this dude had said that he was going to sell this plot of land and give all of it over to the apostles. Peter asks Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You, were lo- you weren't lying to us, but to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. And then some young men got up, wrapped him up in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Apparently, Peter knew the the amount, probably because Ananias and Sapphira pledged a certain amount right before they sold their property. She said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband— are just outside the door, and they're going to carry you out too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Let's pray. Uh, I mean... You know, you look at an account like this and you think to yourself, there's got to be some sort of explanation. Why would God do something like this? Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 3 and sort of break down the motive for why God did this. We're told that Peter said to Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart and you lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself? So apparently what was happening here was that these guys had lied, that they were presenting a certain amount to the apostles. They said, you know, we're good for X number of dollars. And when they sold their property of land, instead of giving the full amount, they kept a portion to themselves, even though they they were claiming to give everything. And so that was what God was taking issue with, which, you know, to... I guess a casual reading would make you feel like this seems a little bit extreme. Why would God do something like this just because these guys decided that they were going to withhold some of the money that they promised? I think a few things to consider. One, Ananias and Sapphira didn't die because they kept part of the money. That's very clear from verse four. Where Peter said, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It was their money before uh, they they sold the property, uh, or right after they sold the property, and it was totally at their disposal. So it wasn't like they were under compulsion. It wasn't like the apostles were forcing them to give this money. It was theirs to give away the entire time. So it wasn't because they kept the money. Secondly, Peter wasn't responsible for this event. He was acting more like a prophet, speaking on God's behalf. But I think that sort of raises a bigger question. Why would God do this? You know, what's up with God killing people? It seems kind of weird that he would do this. I think, first of all, we need to consider that Ananias and Sapphira, they were genuine believers in Christ. There's nothing in the text that tells us that Ananias and Sapphira were anything but Christians. And I don't think there's any reason to doubt that. I think that's very important because the fate that they suffered wasn't as bad knowing that they were going to enter into God's presence. Secondly, I think shortening someone's physical life isn't the worst thing that can happen to them. That's kind of hard for us to grasp, I think, because we are temporal beings. Many of us have only lived short lives, and so it's hard for us to envision you know, shortening someone's life by a decade or two being you know, a really long period of time. But according to the Bible, this isn't the only life that we have to live. That God says we actually have another life promised to us, one that is eternal life. And the Bible teaches that when we decide to receive the gift that God freely offers through Jesus Christ, that we have the promise of eternal life with him. So from God's perspective, when he looks at a believer in Christ and decides that he's going to shorten their lives by maybe 20 years, from where he's standing, the difference of 20 or 40 years really isn't that big of a deal. Although to us, it would be. And so it really isn't the worst thing that can happen to someone. The worst thing that you could experience is having an eternity separated from God, which isn't what they were facing. Thirdly, Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't feel any pain. They dropped dead instantly, and so they didn't suffer. Now, it must have been sort of weird, you know, the last moment or memory they had on earth was standing before the Apostle Peter as he's confronting them, and then the next moment they're standing face-to-face before God. That must have been sort of an awkward interaction, so I guess (laughs) we probably shouldn't have done that, right? (laughs) It kind of sucks, too, I guess, to be remembered for your infamy in the Bible. It's going to be, I guess... Interesting when we see these guys. I mean, I think I believe that they're in heaven, and many of us who uh, have a relationship with God are going to meet these guys. So, imagine being Ananias and Sapphira and meeting a bunch of people who have lived their lives for Christ. I envision going up to you know somebody and being like, Hey, uh, I'm Conrad, what's your name? and uh, he's like, uh, Ananias, and we're like. Dude, like Ananias, and he's like, Yeah, Sapphira, I know, Acts chapter 5, right? <laughs> oh. Well, anyway, you know, why did God discipline these guys so severely? And we, I use the word discipline, not punishment or judgment, because that's not what they faced. They faced discipline from God. I think the main reason behind this comes from their hypocrisy. And, you know, when you think about hypocrisy, Jesus has a lot to say about it in the Gospels. For example, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus turned to one of his disciples and warned him. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. Um, So, you know, he describes hypocrisy as a type of yeast. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but like if you take a lump of dough, and you introduce yeast in there, what will happen is the yeast will actually consume the simple sugars and it will release gas, carbon dioxide, that would then cause the bread to rise and it'll multiply and actually permeate the entire lump of dough. And he's saying that's exactly what hypocrisy can be like in a community where you introduce a little bit of hypocrisy and it starts to spread. In another case, uh, Leon Morris, a commentator, uses, uses this to describe leaven. He says it speaks of a penetration that is slow, insidious, and constant. Sounds a little scary. Now, in Matthew 23, verse 24 through 26, Jesus says, You blind guides who strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside might become clean also. Now, Jesus was using a mixed metaphor here. He was using this metaphor of cleaning the outside of the cup to describe their internal moral problem. But it was also drawing on something that they would actually do. These guys, whenever they would walk into a market, they would carry their, their pots or their cups in order to sell products at the market. And as they were walking through the market, they were afraid that these um, you know, dishes would get contaminated by people's moral filth. And so um, Jesus was pointing out, that's, that's exactly what you guys are doing you're cleaning the outside of the cup. Then he also uses this illustration. He says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I mean, that's a pretty humorous like, example. You know, you're sitting there and you're like, uh, looking in your milk and you're sort of like, picking out little specks of, 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 you know, of dust or dirt in there and then you, uh, you know, go to chug down your milk and you have a camel that you end up swallowing. Jesus was pointing out, he's like, you guys are are fixating yourselves on these small points, but you're really missing the big picture here. These guys would get so fixated on the smaller points of following the Old Testament law that they would actually lose sight of the fact that they should be compassionate and loving toward those who who are less fortunate, those who are poor. And he says, clean the outside of the cup and the dish but instead you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. And so these guys would come home after going to the market and they'd start scrubbing the outside of the dish because they felt like whenever I walk through the presence of sinners, sin could actually cling on to my dish. And when I go to consume this, this product or whatever, I might actually consume sin. So they had sort of this superstitious view of sin, that it was something that you could contract, like a disease. Not understanding that the real problem was internal. You know, I was thinking about this a number of years ago. My buddy, he was hanging out at his friend's house, and um, he was drinking some Coke out of uh, a coffee mug. And so he set it down and went to the bathroom, And then when he came back out, he sat down at a different spot and he ended up grabbing a coffee cup that looked just like his and without looking into the cup, he just grabbed it and chugged it down. Well, little did he know, the guy who was sitting there earlier was dipping. (laughs) He filled the cup with some water and was spitting into the coffee cup I'm going to spare you the chunky, <laughs> gross, brown details of what happened there. You know that would be as ridiculous as, as doing something like that. You know, without even looking into your cup, just just taking a big swig. The point that Jesus is trying to make here is that you know the problem isn't external. It isn't that I'm spending time with sinners and people with problems. The problem is it's internal. It's within. And so Jesus was confronting these guys' hypocrisy, pointing out that, you know, you guys are so fixated on these external things, but you still have a problem that's lingering, and you haven't fixed that part at all. Well, when we talk about hypocrisy, I think, first of all, it isn't, committing sin even though you're a Christian. You know, when you talk to people, they will try to call you out because you're a Christian when you do something wrong. I remember driving with a friend of mine and, um, you know, somebody cut me off and a few colorful words dribbled out of my mouth. And uh, he turned to me, he was like, dude, he's like, you're, you're a Christian. That's hypocritical for you to say those kinds of things. And I had to point out to him, I said, look, being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't have any more problems. It doesn't mean that you stop sinning. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian person is that the Christian has humbled themselves and accepted the free gift that Jesus has given them. And so it was an opportunity for, to me, for me to explain that being a Christian doesn't mean that you're perfect. Or that you're better than people, it simply means that you have received the grace of God. It doesn't mean that we stop committing sin. It does mean, however, it is a form of, of uh, dishonesty, where in hypocrisy, you are trying to project an image of yourself that doesn't fit with reality. You're trying to show people that you really are better than you actually are, but behind closed doors, you're something different. And so that's hypocrisy. It's a form of lying. It's dishonesty. Secondly, it means claiming to be more holy or spiritual than you really are. You see this sometimes where people will talk about how we need to love the poor. We need, we need to sacrifice for the poor and do something about this plight. And then you come to find out that they're not even giving anything toward the cause of the poor. You know, that would be a form of hypocrisy, claiming that you're more spiritual or holy than you actually are. Another thing is that hypocrisy spreads and infects the body of Christ. Remember, we talked about how Paul envisioned our community as being like an organic, living thing. And that he envisions each individual member as being connected, as as though, you know, an arm or a leg is connected to a body. And so hypocrisy can actually spread and infect the body of Christ. That's why Jesus described it as a leaven. You know, in the ancient Jewish world, leaven was viewed as like a contagion. It was something that would actually... You know, cause something to be unclean. And so that's why during the Passover feast, God instructed the Israelites, I don't want you to eat any leavened bread. That is no bread with yeast because it was viewed as a type of corruption. And so likewise, when Jesus talks about leaven spreading through the whole lump, that hypocrisy can corrupt the body of Christ. It can damage it. Also, it destroys authenticity. I think that's one of the real killers of of authenticity and community. You know, if you're sitting there and you're talking to someone and and they're going on about how awesome they are and how many good things they do and how they don't struggle really with hardly anything anymore unlike they they used to, and you're sitting there stewing on some problem that you have, you're not going to want to share that. What are you going to do? You're going to go underground. You're going to you're going to put out a front in order to sort of camouflage your problems. And the other people are probably thinking the same thing. I'm not going to share my problem after this dude went on about how great he is, how holy he is. And so you see that hypocrisy can actually spread and actually destroy authenticity in the body of Christ. Also, it damages God's reputation to the watching world. That's maybe one of the worst parts about this, that when the world looks on at Christians and sees the hypocrisy, people who are preaching against, you know, uh, sexual immorality and all of these other things, and they get busted for doing just that, it really discredits the message of Christ. A number of years ago, Lifeway Research did a study on people's perception of Christians and they found that 72% of adults who don't attend church thought the church is full of hypocrites. But the same survey showed that 78% would be willing to listen to someone who wanted to share their beliefs about Christianity. That squares with what I actually have encountered when I talk to non-Christian people. They don't have a problem with the Bible. They don't have a problem with Christianity necessarily. Most of the time, they have a problem with their followers, its followers, that they feel like Christians are hypocrites, and so that's maybe one of the worst parts about this is that people won't give Christianity a hearing because they feel like Christians are hypocrites. Well, I think... The main reason why God took such severe action here is that he could not afford to let hypocrisy take root at such a formative stage in the body of Christ. He knew that once the body of Christ got infected with hypocrisy, it would be hard to try to treat it. And so God wanted to put an exclamation point on this and basically say, that ain't going to happen here. I'm going to root this out right away. And I think it's important that we also keep in mind their background. Remember, they grew up in a culture where people viewed the pathway to get to God as being a good person and avoiding sinful things. Here's an example that we get from Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells this parable. He says, Jesus told the story to someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He said, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Now, to the ancient Jewish person, there was no one better than a Pharisee. These guys were considered like the most righteous people you could ever meet. And on the other hand, there is nobody that you could meet who was worse than a tax collector. And we're not talking about somebody who just worked at like the IRS or something like that. These tax collectors were actually people working for the Roman government, which oppressed the nation of Israel. So these guys who were Jewish fellow countrymen were actually working for the enemy and collecting taxes from their own people. So these guys were like the sinners, the lowlifes, the criminals... Obviously, no normal person would gravitate toward being a tax collector. It's not like you'd go to college and be like, man, I'm really, I want to be a tax collector one day, you know, have this bright future. A lot of times, it was the marginalized part of society that would, that would become a tax collector. And they would hang out with other people who were just like them. So... Jesus gives sort of this polarizing picture. Here's this guy who's like the most righteous person, and then you have this guy who's like the worst of all sinners. And he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else, for I do not cheat, I do not sin, I do not commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. So this guy is just exuding self righteousness. He's thanking God for how righteous and how good he is. And even praying, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. But then we're told the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift, lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. And instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. This would have turned the entire uh, ancient Jewish thinking on its head. Because to the ancient Jewish person, if there was one person who could actually make it into heaven, certainly it would be a Pharisee because this guy was so righteous. And to think that this sinner, this tax collector, would be someone that actually could experience justification would have just blown their mind. Jesus follows this up by summarizing, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus knew how dangerous this mentality was. That, If God didn't do something about this, and it took hold in the early church, that it could actually eradicate the existence of the early church and turn it into the kind of legalistic system that Jesus was fighting against during his ministry. Now, what happens when hypocrisy takes hold and spreads in a community? I think, first of all, it robs a community of honesty and authenticity, You know, when you have people there talking about how good they are, how they don't have any problems, or maybe it's not that they're saying that they don't have any problems, but they fail to express that they have any problems. People just get the impression, these guys are just really good, and I can't even relate to them. And so they either leave or they stay in the community and put on a front as well. They adopt that same posture of trying to pretend that they're actually better than they really are. Secondly, spiritual growth becomes difficult. You know, we have a lot of problems. I have a lot of problems. And if I don't have an outlet to be honest, to open up about these problems to fellow Christians, then a lot of those problems are going to remain unresolved. And so a lot of spiritual growth comes from us expressing the issues that we have and getting some help from Christians who care and love about us, love us. Also, it damages our ability to build deep relationships. If everybody is pretending like they're really good and they don't have any problems, people are going to be reluctant to move in close to one another because they don't want to be found out for who they really are. And so you'll see that a lot of Christian communities will relate to one another in these superficial ways, but they won't get deep enough to really find out about the problems and struggles that, each other have. Also, it creates uh, an environment of competition. You know, if you have one person posturing that they're really good and they're doing all these really good things, there's sort of this race to show that I'm just as good, I can keep up, and I do all these other good things too. And so it becomes this thing where we're boasting about how good we are. We're competing to show that we're better, more holy than somebody else, or that we're more spiritual. Also, the outward focus disappears when you're so fixated on trying to show that you're a good person in comparison to everybody else, you're not worried about showing God's love to other people. Not to mention, I think that people, the watching world, are going to be looking in, and they're going to be able to to smell the fakery. I'll tell you what, non-Christian people are very sensitive about fakery and inauthenticity, And they're particularly suspicious about Christian groups. So if they come to our group and they notice that people are just pretending or that there's a vibe that people are faking it, it's going to turn them off. Also, it tends to focus on external unimportant behavior. You'll see these in some groups where people will throw down these thundering judgments on people who... Say, you know, bad words or smoke a cigarette or something like that. And they'll get real angry about these external things. But then you'll notice that the people in that community aren't showing any sort of love. And they they feel okay with that. That most of those people aren't even sharing their faith. And that, you know, they don't even blink an eye when that happens. But they really take issue over these small external issues. And so that's what you see in a group that is, I guess, inundated with hypocrisy, that they tend to fixate on these external, unimportant behaviors rather than focusing on the things that really matter, like love, justice, compassion, things like that. Also, God may withdraw his power to work through a specific community. When a group is in the throes of hypocrisy, You know, people are not going to be attracted to that group. People are not going to want to stick around in a group like that. And eventually you'll see that that group has lost its effectiveness for God. That hardly any new people come out. Hardly any people are showing interest in Christianity. And God actually has withdrawn his power from that group. That's a terrible fate. Now, you know, some of us, I'm sure, probably don't struggle with anything like this. But, you know, if you're thinking about a friend who does struggle with this sort of problem, there are some diagnostic questions you might have, you can ask yourself or uh, save for them. Here's a question maybe to consider. Have you ever felt bad that someone else got more recognition than you? Hmm. What about this one? Have you ever held back the full extent of personal sin in order to seem more spiritual than you really are? Ever? I hope I'm not the only one here who's ever done that. What about this one? Have you ever been defensive when confronted with personal failure? Uh, Why would that be a sign of hypocrisy? Well, because I think in a group that's authentic, where people are being open and vulnerable, people aren't afraid to show that they have problems. It's a known fact that people have problems in this group. And so it shouldn't be a shock when something emerges. What about this one? Do you ever find yourself doing spiritual things to offset some sort of moral failure? Trying to compensate, maybe, to show that, you know, I am spiritual, I am good. What about this one? Do you find yourself comparing your moral goodness to other people's? Or maybe in our context, asking yourself, am I more spiritual than this person over here? That'd be the same thing. Well, signs maybe that you're moving in the right direction would be, first of all, doing good without seeking credit for that. That would be a real good sign. That you're doing things behind the scenes and you're intentionally doing it so that people... Won't notice. What about this? Allowing others to get credit for something that I did. Oh, my gosh. I have to say, this, is, uh, this can be pretty painful to watch happen. You know, <clears throat> I've been in situations where I have brought a guy around and have shared Christ with them and, and tried to break down a bunch of different arguments for Christianity And then they end up talking to a friend in my group, and in one conversation, this person is just like, man, uh, this guy I was talking to, he, like, was explaining all of these things, and it just, I had never heard any of this stuff before. It was amazing. And I'm just sitting there, you know, just biting my lip uh, in anger because I'm not getting the kind of credit that I deserve, or, you know, I'll be in a group and, and uh, people will say, oh, you know, so-and-so had this awesome idea. And I'm thinking to myself, I was talking to him about that idea and then he basically hijacked it and made it his own. I want some credit. Yeah. Allowing others to get credit for something I did. That would be a good sign. And finally, freely admitting your problems to close friends. I think that'd be a really good sign that you're combating hypocrisy, that you are sharing personal struggles instead of holding all that stuff in. Now, how do we counter our hypocrisy? I want to offer a couple suggestions. I think, first of all, you need to realize the truth will eventually come out. Remember that passage there in Luke chapter 12, verse 1? In the two following verses, Jesus says this, the time is coming when everything is covered up that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light and whatever you whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. That's gonna be an interesting day for me. Um, but it, it gives me incentive to know, look, everyone's gonna know all of the issues I've ever had. Maybe maybe it won't be this side of eternity. Maybe it'll be the next. Um, But eventually, it's all going to come out. And so I might as well just be honest. might as well just come right out with it. Um, Because eventually, God is going to expose us for what we really are. And that, honestly, is going to be relieving. Because some of us are just holding back stuff, and it's eating us up. Secondly, I think we need to throw ourselves upon God's grace. That's ultimately the solution to hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy in a way is a form of self-justification. It's a way of trying to earn your way to heaven. It's a way of trying to save yourself by trying to focus on the good things that you do and the things that you don't do. But God says there is nothing that we can do to ever earn our way to heaven. That the only way that God provides for us, since we're guilty, is through Jesus Christ. That God sent his own son Jesus to come and die for us and to forgive us for all of our sins. And the moment that we turn to him in faith, we can actually receive eternal life through that. And... Once we know that our salvation is secure, that that frees us up to be honest about our problems because if God looks at us as his son or daughter who is blameless, who is righteous, not because of the things that we do, but because of what Jesus has done, that he's forgiven us for all of these things that we've done past, present, and future, then who cares how people are going to respond to us because we know ultimately God's view of us is secure And so that opens us up to be able to express our problems, knowing that God shows us incredible grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lord, uh, I think our culture just cries out for authenticity, for people to be real. And um, I think so many people in our culture are just putting up fronts and acting like their lives are great when really they know it's not it's not good, and and, uh, that many of them feel like uh, they're aimless. And um, we pray that we can be a community, a beacon of light uh, to our world that shows uh, authenticity, that uh, people sense that the individuals here are genuine, they actually love one another. And um, mostly we pray too that you would you would spare us from the fate of becoming a group that is filled with hypocrisy. Uh, This is definitely a tendency that we have, Lord. It's something that could happen. And uh, I pray that you would just root that out in our group, Lord, and that it would never uh, just spread as uh, Jesus described there in Luke chapter 12. And uh, mostly, Lord, I pray for um, many of our students here visiting For College Connection, I pray that you would uh, help give them wisdom and insight about what to do uh, for their college um, or what they're going to do after they graduate from high school. And I pray that they would have a great week that's just filled with uh, vision and uh, that they can have a really great time just hanging out with college folks. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.